Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom and welcome. How are you, Jim? I am doing fine, Baruch Hashem. Rabbi, how are you doing? The answer is always Baruch Hashem for every breath that we take. Thank God we are are living and we are receiving the tremendous blessing of being alive in Hashem's world at every moment. Although, yes, it does get a little bit sticky from time to time. It gets a little bit complicated, doesn't it? It does. It does. But I understand because there there are new, you know, we're going through the typical uh, machinations over here. But Israel, there's a more severe lockdown looming or has it begun already? So as we speak at the at the at this moment, um, the the Knesset is supposed to be voting on what sort of um, intensity they're going to now be um, decreeing either um, in more intensified restrictions or a general lockdown, which might last for quite a while. We are officially in a third wave. And um, yeah, it's quite uh, challenging to live this way. It's, it sounds like we are heading for another severe lockdown, which will mean uh, the cessation of all business uh, and educational facilities and uh, limitation of movement again to, let's mm-hmm. say, a thousand meters from one's home other than for vital needs. So uh, it's it's extremely challenging. And I'm, But I want to plug it in, Jim, into a much broader picture of the state of affairs. Maybe we should, maybe we could deliver a state of the union um, message in our broadcast today. And I think, I think the time has come for that because there's so much going on that is um, part of this composite picture of either a total breakdown, a total breakdown of society and the world as we know it, or if we want to look at it in um, a very positive way, which of course, um, like you asked me, how am I? Well, you know what? We are um, receiving Hashem's benevolence and a divine blessing at every moment. So we could look at it that way, that something is going on, something's going on which is, um, shall we say, it's a transition. And I think everybody everybody knows that, everybody admits that. We are, we are, um, we are moving from one stage to another. And f- first, if I, and I have so much that I want to talk to you about today, if we can put it into some sort of perspective. Yeah, I, what I was going to say to add to what you're saying, it may be to, to sort of clarify it for our, our, our listeners, what we're looking at is, what you're referring to is the fact that here in our own country, here in America, the whole democratic uh, dynamic of, of voting for a president is being called into question. What, whatever, wherever you, uh, our listeners fall on the side of this question, you can't deny that the democratic process is in an upheaval right now. And even in Israel, where you live, with these these recalls of not not a recall, what the 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 continuing re-election of a prime minister shows that the same idea that there's this upheaval. And what what do you see this as? Yes, you as know? of now the, the Knesset has now been dissolved has dissolved itself. And we are, and I, I can't even say, <laughs> say these words, they get stuck in my throat because it's so ludicrous. We are heading towards our fourth election in two years. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's becoming so ridiculous. And um, 
but again, at the, at the same time, I think it's I think it's perfect. I think it's it's not chaos. I think it is perfect order uh, because what's what, and it all it all it all ties together. It all ties together all over the world, really, but especially in Israel, um, which is broadcasting a certain frequency for the rest of the world. It's like Hashem is saying, like this is not working anymore. This is not working anymore, and you know it's not working anymore, and you ha- and you've been expecting this. But but let me let me back up, Jim. Let me back up because there's there's just so much going on, and I see one beautiful, tightly knit theme to so many things that are going on in time and space around us. Of course, the Torah portion this week of Vayigash is um, just stunning. It is full of the incredible pathos of. Yosef reuniting with his brothers, Yosef unmasking himself. He, he's been dealing with his brothers for weeks now, but he is now going to make himself known uh, to them. Why they did not understand until now who they were standing a few feet away from after having uh, lived with him uh, for years and a mere 22 years um, interruption. Why they did not understand that until now is the subject of our video this week where I want to examine in in, um, in close scrutiny what does it mean that Yosef recognized his brothers but they didn't recognize him? I mean, it just so, it just seems to be a, a powerful, powerful question. I mean, how is that possible even? You know, I, I can relate to that and I, I think all of our listeners can because, you know, at, at first blush you think, how in the world can they not recognize their own kind. I vividly remember being in, uh, when I was living in Texas, I was, I was, uh, I grew up in, in Brady, Texas, and I was in another town one week and I saw someone that I went to school with and walking down the street. And I looked at him and, and thought that looks just like so-and-so, but that can't be them because they don't live here. And it wasn't until they saw me and we spoke, and I, and I, you know, I said, "Oh, it is you." That that's how easy it is. Okay, I don't want to say anything now because I don't want. I don't. That's a good teaser for my video, but I don't okay, want to. Well, I don't, don't want to. Right, I don't want to go too far. But basically, what are you saying? Open up your heart in the deepest way. You're saying that it, you're saying you said to yourself it can't be him because you had already decided someplace in your head that it can't yeah. be him. <laughs> let's, let's 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 not go go further than that at the moment. Like I say, I, I want everyone to appreciate the fullness of the whole concept that we're going to approach in the video. But the thing is, this there's also so much going on in the in the Torah portion because it's also Yosef's reun- reuniting with his beloved father, and it's also really Jim the beginning of the decree uh, that was made uh, by Hashem to Avraham back in Parshat Lech Lecha. At the covenant between the portions, it's it's starting. The groundwork is being laid right now, and um, this is the way it has to be. And Yosef was sent on ahead as a blessing to prepare. But now there's a, uh, there's so many turning points that are going on in this Torah portion because the the seventy souls the Torah kept emphasizing, you know, and keeps emphasizing in various places. The seventy souls went down to Egypt, and these seventy souls are now going to become millions. And it's in the darkness, uh, the spiritual darkness of the what's called the, the the smelting pot, the crucible of Egypt. It's there that the people, the family of Israel, as it were, turns into a nation. So there, there's just a tremendous amount going on here in in this Torah portion. But backing up again a, a moment, Jim, if I may, you know, today as we as we record our program. 
is, of course, the 23rd of December, but in reality, it's the 8th of Tevet on the Hebrew calendar of Tevet. Now, as we've mentioned, this Hebrew month of Tevet is so unusual. It's very unique in that it is uh, began with Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, a beloved festival of light and courage and standing up against oppression uh, and the rededication of the Holy Temple, Hanukkah began... Uh, in the 25th day of Kislev, and the last three days of that festival go into the new month of Tevet. So Hanukkah is the only festival that begins in one month and ends in the next. So Tevet got off on this start of the light of Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. But then, which of course is temple consciousness, but then a few days later, we are plunged into darkness, and that becomes the major theme of Tevet's. It's still about the temple. It's still about temple consciousness. And the month still began with that light. But this week, actually, we have three days of darkness. And today is the first of them. And it's the 8th and the 9th and the 10th of Tevet that I want to talk about for a few moments. This Friday, mm -hmm. December 25th, is the 10th of Tevet. It is a fast day. It is uh, one of the fast days mentioned in Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 19. It's called the fast of the 10th. That is the 10th month. And it is one of the fast days in the cycle of mourning for the Holy Temple, which Zechariah prophesies will be turned into a day of gladness. But uh, what happened on that day um, was that was the day back in the year, the Hebrew year, 3,336, which is about 425 BCE. That was the day that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And then uh, the following year, on the 9th of Tammuz, the walls of the city, in the time of the first temple I'm talking about, the walls of the city were breached. That led to the destruction of the temple on the 9th of Av. So, so the beginning of the whole disaster of the destruction of the first temple really began on the 10th of Tevet, which is this, this Friday. Historical note here, very quickly. We often hear or read the idea that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar never set foot in the city of Jerusalem during this entire time. He was he stayed home in his capital, and and sent his general was it Nebuzaradan or something like that. It was their own. It was their yeah, own. He's yeah. the one that that conducted this whole military campaign. But I just wanted to to sort of add that because people often we read that and and he never actually came down to the city. He was sitting up on his throne, and uh, but you anyway you were continuing to talk about. This so about this fast day, about, about this fast day, first of all, just as the month of Tevet is unique in that, again, it began with Hanukkah, and now we are uh, shifting gears, still focused and, and centered on the concept of the Holy Temple, but we're moving from the joy of Hanukkah, which was about the rededication of the temple in the time of the second temple, we're moving back to the beginning of the cycle of the destruction which, as I say, really began on the 10th of Tevi, the day that the, that the siege began. And um, that in itself is an interesting thing, the fact that we're never, you know, we measure time by the temple. We measure, the, we measure time by the joy of the temple and by the, the sorrow, but it's it, always the center of our consciousness. But the very, very unique thing about this coming fast day which, of course, is not a full fast day like Yom Kippur or Tisha B'Av. It doesn't begin the, the night before. It begins with um, sunrise, and it continues until the, uh, t twilight, until, the, until three stars come out. 
this fast of the, of the tenth of Tevet is the only fast which is ever observed on a Friday. And any other fast day, even if the ninth of I would come out on a Friday, it's 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 postponed. It's not observed that day. But the tenth of Tevet is observed on Friday, so that we actually are fasting on the eve of of the Sabbath, which normally is never never permitted because one is not supposed to come into the Sabbath ravenous. But we actually will be breaking the fast with Kiddush on Friday night. So that that's how unique. And by the way, this is only happens every few years that the tenth of Tevet could fall out on, on a on a Friday. So that that uh, is um, an amazing idea. But before that, before we talk about the nuts and bolts of my message to our listeners about the 10th of Tevet, I want to go back to today. Today is the 8th of Tevet. And today is a, is a very unique day in the annals of Jewish history. Uh, it It is the day uh, in 246 BCE, which was, I believe, 3,515 on the Hebrew calendar, it was the day when a king by the name of Ptolemy, an Egyptian king, Ptolemy, commissioned he was a Greek. Greek, okay. Yeah, he was a, he was one of the he was the the Ptolemaic dynasty, leadership right. uh, dynasty. Exactly started with uh, the death of Alexander the Great, and he divided up his entire empire. Uh, between his four generals and Ptolemy, was Ptolemy. the one he was given. He was given Egypt, in which that period is called the right, Ptolemaic. Right. I'm sorry, that's why I said Egypt. Of course, of course, he was Greek because he, what what happened on this day, the eighth of Tevet, is that he, I should say, I would say commissioned, but he didn't commission. He coerced the translation of the Torah into Greek, the famed Septuagint. Septuagint, original translation of Torah into Greek, was. Um, commanded by King Ptolemy on the 8th of Tevet, in which he basically sequestered 72 sages of Israel in 72 separate locations and made them translate the Torah into Greek. And this is a a very uh, unique day because originally, uh, in the olden days, it was a day of fasting. Mm -hmm. In, f- in fact, Jim, in the in the in olden times, there the people of Israel used to fast this week three days consecutively: the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth day of Tevet. Because on the eighth, it's the day that the Torah was translated into Greek. Now, why is that a day that we should be fasting? I'll discuss in a moment. The ninth day of Tevet tomorrow is also a tragic day for the for the Hebrew calendar because it is the day of the passing of Ezra the scribe. Wow. The great prophet Ezra, and the tenth of Tevet, as we've been discussing, is the day of the siege. Now, in the olden days, um, it was considered that people had a stronger constitution and they were able to fast in, in such a manner. Of course, the the Torah concept of a fast is you don't drink water or tea or anything light. There's no eating or drinking at all. So, at one point, the sages decided that the people, uh, their constitution, was not strong enough. And we we ceased fasting on the eighth and the ninth, and all of these um, reasons for fasting were kind <clears throat> excuse me were kind of rolled into the tenth. So the tenth of Tevet, which is the fast day, is also a reflection of the tragedies of the eighth and the ninth, and and uh, no one really fasts the the three days anymore. So they, they fast we fast on the on the tenth, and re- recall also the meaning of the eighth and the ninth, and. And by the way, in the modern day state of Israel, 
the 10th of Tevet um, has taken on another, another um, side, another, another aspect in that it is, it is a general memorial day for those that perished in the Holocaust, the date of their murder not being known. Um, the Kaddish memorial prayer for the dead is recited for all of those people on the 10th of Tevet. So it is another level of significance. But but getting back to this idea of the translation of the Torah into Greek, the sages, um, they give a startling teaching about this. And they tell us that the translation of Torah into Greek was a tragedy of such of such a tremendous uh, import that it is compared to the day of the worship of the golden calf. Wow. They say that's how bad, they say the world was plunged into darkness when the Torah was translated into Greek. And they actually, that's the comparison that they make. It's a famous statement that it is like the day that Israel worshiped the golden calf. And so this of course is a, is a tremendous mystery. What in the world do they mean? Because uh, ostensibly, we would assume that the translation of the Torah is, is a great thing because so many of our listeners, so many of us all over the world would have no access to Torah if we didn't have a translation because so many people do not understand Hebrew. And you have to admit that the wonderful uh, and vast array of Torah literature that is uh, that is obtainable today, Art Scroll and all the other responsible and authentic translations that have been made provide access to Torah for the whole world. And that's actually the goal of Jerusalem Lights, to share the light of the Torah with the whole world. And I'll make the question even stronger. Uh, Moshe spoke 70 languages. Members of the Sanhedrin uh, spoke 70 languages. The the Torah itself, when the people of Israel came into the land and they set up those huge uh, stones, um, the Torah was translated into all the languages of the world for the for all the world to see. So it's not about denying access. It's not about uh, keeping it in the drawer. So wh- why would the sages compare the giving of uh, the, the translation of the Torah into Greek with the worship of the golden calf? And I think that the that the understanding is so stark and uh, powerful because what this really requires of of us is to understand well what is the significance of the worship of the golden calf and the more that we study that incident the more we learn that it, the, the the criticism it wasn't about actual idolatry you know the sages they don't consider that to have been an example of of real uh, of Odazara. it's not like the people were actually thinking that this is God. That's not what was going on there. In, f- in fact, the fact is that um, uh, when it was all over, uh, God was ready to bring the people into the land. And the only thing that that uh, deflected that uh, from happening was the incident of the spies later on in the book of Numbers. But it was like, okay, about 3,000 people perished in a plague. And then God said, let's go on from here. You're a very stubborn people and we'll go on from here. And they were forgiven. No, what the sages teach is that it wasn't so much that they actually considered that idol to be God, of course, under the influence of the mixed multitude who who had them created, but rather their thing was that they needed to focus on something. 
they needed uh, an intermediary, a go-between. They needed, they, they felt, yet uh, having just come out of Egypt as slaves, they felt uncomfortable with the concept, of, with wrapping their minds around God, who is this full, su- total substance of reality that has no end. And that's a very hard thing. It requires a tremendous amount of spiritual maturity. And so they wanted to have some app some some mm-hmm. some tech something that they could hold on to and uh, and concentrate on and, and why it was a cow that came out of the fire is another another very mysterious story altogether that has to be understood but the point is it was about some some thing you know like moshe was late they didn't know where he was they, and they they desperately needed something to hang on to and this by the way is also a revelation or a critique of of their relationship with moshe who who from this time on when he came down had to wear a mask uh, and because and and their relationship with him was diminished from that point on because they did not really understand his his role in, in their life so 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 but the point is this thing it was nothing more than something for them to focus their attention on but they but it wasn't real they never meant that it was real right and one of the tragedies of it being translated uh into the language that was then the lingua franca of of the world in that time everybody spoke greek or wrote in greek to communicate uh is it not safe to say that the tragedy one of the tragedies of the translation was that the sages knew that the tr- the torah would be transmitted without the benefit of the oral torah honestly this is a perfect continuation from from Hanukkah. And now we understand how much this makes sense, this whole um, transition from one aspect of temple consciousness to another, from Hanukkah to the darkness of Tevet. Because, Jim, this was just another Hellenistic um, t- uh, tactic. You know, remember that the goal of, of, of the invader, the Greek invaders in the Hanukkah story was to, was to foist their Hellenistic ideology onto Israel. And even though this happened before that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, as far as the, the calendar is concerned, this incident happened before the Hanukkah story. It's the same theme. It's the theme of, it's, it's like this. It's like, it's like um, for the King Ptolemy had a library, you know, and in his library, he had all sorts of books. He had uh, all sorts of, of books of wisdom. Like I, I say, like he had the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he right. had the I Ching, and he had, and he had he had all these books, and he had the Torah. So it's another book of folklore, yeah, and wisdom. Exactly. Understand? So, so, so here's the thing, and this is like deep. And this is the secret of why the sages compare it to, to the worship of the golden calf. Because what is the golden calf? It's an illusion. It's mm-hmm. nothing. But you think it's something because you have something to you have something to look at. You have something to focus on. You have something to wrap your mind around. So you're comfortable in your little comfort zone. You as a person, you're you're comfortable because that's what you can deal with in your in in your humanity. So two, this is the thing with the translation of the Torah. And again, this is not to put down people that study the Torah in an authentic uh, translation, but they, they all know, every sincere student of Torah that's listening, all my students that I love so much, they all know that the best that they can hope for with the best of the translations is a limited understanding and that they have to ask more because exactly. that because every word, every, if I may say jot and tittle, every word 
in Torah, every cantillation mark, every crown and every letter has tremendous amount of significance. And so the best that a translation uh, can be is, is a good uh, presentation of an idea, but it, it's not the same thing at all. But when a person thinks that this is it, now I know it. Now I've got, I've got it here in my hand. I've got it right mm-hmm. here. There's nothing, right. nothing, nothing more to say. This is uh, the, uh, the greatest tragedy of all because it is a misrepresentation of Hashem's will and truth. And then you've got a lot of people walking around saying, oh, I don't need exactly what you said. Now this is getting back to what you said. Oh, I don't need the rabbinical tradition. I don't need the oral tradition. I don't need the right. unbroken chain from the time that Hashem opened up his mouth at Mount Sinai and said, this is the tradition. I don't need that. I know what it is. I've got a doctorate. I've got, yeah. I've got and, and, yeah, and I, I, I have I have experienced the same thing that many uh, Nahides who who finally uh, come to embrace Torah, they often, as I did, they embrace it in this very limited fashion. When I first made my transition into saying the Torah is the truth for me, I if you spoke to me of anything other than what was on the written page, I didn't want to hear it, and yet I was I was. You know, I was limiting my understanding of the richness and the depth that is embedded in every single word of the Torah. The language is so exact. Because you are a sincere, true, heartfelt, driven student of Torah. And what happens in, in with a real, sincere, heartfelt, driven student of Torah, the irony is that the, as soon as you begin to study the written page, having said what you just said, you begin to understand, wait, this doesn't make any sense without the oral Torah, because Hashem and his wisdom gave them at simultaneously the two halves, and that's what has kept the Torah alive and vibrant and electric, because the, the, the written page is like the notes that were taken in a lecture. It's like a shorthand, and you know very well it doesn't even make sense without the revelation of what Hashem gave over in every generation from Moshe on. That's what Moshe was doing on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. He was, he was being taught the wisdom of the oral tradition. So this is the this is the thing about about today this very day the eighth of of Tevet is that it is uh, it is a challenge to us to arise above the illusory deceptive uh, kind of seductive um, feeling that we might have that we possess the knowledge uh, on our own and again I, I have only praise and um, appreciation of everyone that studies Torah in whatever language they are studying it. And this is our whole goal. And this is the goal of, of, of Israel. And this is Hashem's goal for Israel is to share the light of the Torah with everyone. But it's important to understand that the, to, in order to really preserve the integrity and the meaning, we, we have to somehow be connected to the original Hebrew, whether it's through a teacher, through a rabbi, or through the most authoritative translation possible. We must always understand. I mean, and, and in our classes and in our weekly Torah portions and in this podcast and in my Zoom classes, we make it so clear that that that, that every every word, this is only one aspect of a word. It's endless. It's absolutely endless. But here comes King Ptolemy. And it's a very controlling thing, this Greek attribute of like yeah. the ancient Greek, please don't be offended. This Greek attribute of like this like control, you know, this mm-hmm. this Hellenistic thing, like, you know, like you're we're gonna do it our way now, and this is the truth and the and the truth. And you know what? You know why it's such an example of Hellenism? Because what was the whole idea about 
about the darkness of the Greek wisdom in the Hanukkah story that we that we were taking, talking about was that it was like uh, beauty being skin deep. You know, it's like art and appreciating everything, only what can be proven and demonstrated and their conception of art, right? Not true art with the soul. And so the same thing with King Ptolemy, like he thinks he's got it here because he's got this translation, but it's only what he sees and it's not real. Yeah. So this is, this is I, th I think, my understanding, at least, of, of what the sages truly mean when they say that it's comparable in terms of it plunging the world into darkness, comparable to the idea of the golden calf. Because what the golden calf really is, is it's a gross misunderstanding of what God really is. God is never and will never be anything that will make you comfortable in your comfort zone. If you want to have a relationship with God, the first rule is you are not in your comfort zone anymore. Yeah. Because there's nothing for you to understand that you can look at other than the knowledge that there is only one God who is all reality, but he doesn't yeah. have a face. He doesn't have a and face. I, and I, I, think, I think what Ptolemy probably attempted to do was, you know, the, the, the perfect uh, solution to translating it would to have been to provide a Hebrew scholar with every copy of this of the Torah then given out at, or a teacher because that's the only way you know even today when when I open up my you know I have several different versions of the Torah we have the stone Tanakh we have the art scroll even even so translating it in from from the Hebrew text into English you lose so much and therefore, thank God, we have these commentaries uh, that are provided by these thoughtful publishers. And and uh, but I, I still think that one of the benefits that I have found is that to make the Torah come alive, you need a teacher. And and this is even backed up when we get into the book of Devarim and Deuteronomy. It, there is a there is a an endorsement from the Torah to to uh, pass along the Torah with the oral tradition, the oral version of the Torah. And uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, sort of uh, aspects of comparing the, the words to the oral tradition is it's like, it's like a song. And the, the song is, is the, uh, the, um, the words of the Torah and the, the melody is the oral tradition. You can't have one without the other. And one is sort of this ethereal aspect that is that is uh, brought to bear, even even while we're talking about it right now, uh, there is there is this wonderful dynamic that connects all of us and our listeners to Hashem it, it, uh, because we're we're opening it up, uh, and not just the dry words on the page, so to speak. And as I've always said, um, as our, our our sages teach us, when we pray. It, we're speaking to Hashem. But when we study Torah with sincerity, Hashem is speaking to us. And he and it comes through. There's a message that comes through on a very personal level. And and it's so what's so amazing for me to be listening to you talking about the oral tradition is that, of course, I know you for many, many years, Jim. I think we go back some decades. Yes. And <laughs> unlike Yosef and his brothers, we seem to recognize each other. And um, I know you to be an incredibly learned scholar. The thing is, though, What's amazing is that here you are, you are not Jewish. You love Hashem, you love the Torah. You're such an inspiration to so many Jews and Gentiles. And the thing is that, that you know, I wonder if there are Gentile listeners that are, that are listening to you that can't figure you out because, the, because as you said, the, 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 um, the reaction that many 
people who love the Bible have when they study the Bible, and then they they have this aversion to what they call rabbinic Judaism and the tradition of the rabbis, is that they have and and you know they get into this whole thing. Oh, this is all man made. This is all. And that, that, of course, is we believe is the furthest thing from the truth because, again, Hashem gave over all of this to Moshe. And as it says in the chapters of the fathers, Moshe gave it to Joshua, and Joshua gave it to the prophets, the prophets gave it to the elders, and the whole idea. But the thing is, it's, it's amazing, you know, f- for me, every time I hear you talk about your connection with and your appreciation of the oral tradition, because it still is such an unusual thing in the non-Jewish world to, to, have, to, to express that appreciation, because it mean, what it means, Jim, first of all, more than anything else to me, what, you're, what you are is you are an expression of true humility. Because you're saying, unlike King Ptolemy's translation, which is, uh, which is, um, the tragedy of today, the eighth of of, uh, of Tevet, is that you're saying, no, I don't know everything, and I'm depending on the unbroken tradition of the sages of Israel to explain what Hashem is saying, and yeah, that and to be, is a huge thing. And to be honest, you know, whenever and I, I, I profoundly, you know, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm gratified by your expressions of my being a scholar, but, you know, I wouldn't, you wouldn't. Be, you wouldn't give expression to that idea. I wouldn't. I, I mean, I've been accused of being a scholar often, <laughs> but the only thing is, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to bring forth any of the things that I that I offer from the Torah if it hadn't been for my Jewish teachers. I I didn't come to this on my own. I didn't sit in my study and and read the Word and come up with these. It is a lifetime of listening to the Jewish people and, and listening to my teachers. And I, cha- I, I found, and I'm gonna, I'll get off this in a second, but I want to say that every time I run into my fellow non-Jews who get off the derrick, who get off the path, they're the ones who, who say, I don't have any use for the rabbis. And, and, and yet you, I, I, all, I, I, I ask them, what, what in the world, what do you think their agenda is, my friend? Do you think do you th- do you think that these people are skulking around in a room and saying we're going to take over the world and we're going to make them take on the six hundred and thirteen misvote? You know, even uh, <laughs> you have to question the motive of people. And I often remind people the sages uh, who who passed down all of this wisdom. What would have been their motivation? Because if it was to take over the world. They have been doing it for three thousand years and they haven't done it yet. That you know so. They uh, and I don't see them on. I don't see them coming knocking door to door saying you need to read the Torah and you need to understand it. If I had my way, you would. <laughs> but but Hashem is not like that. Hashem s- says, raise up the Torah, show the beauty of it. I liken it to Moses holding up the the two uh, Torah stones and saying, look how beautiful these are, and look what's written from within. So with that, so that was the stone edition. <laughs> yeah, very good. I wanted to just wrap up about the three days of this week. Ah, yeah, sorry. So that was today. Today, the eighth of Tevet, again the day of the Greek translation, the disaster of the Greek translation. To tomorrow, the ninth of Tevet, and again all three days at one time when people were stronger were were observed as fast days, right? And now we fast on the tenth, which is this Friday. The eighth of Tevet is observed as a fast. And is, is, it was observed as a fast. It is a day of, of 
of uh, difficulty, and it is associated with the day of the passing of Ezra, Ezra the scribe. And who was Ezra? He was a great leader. He um, came back with the original returnees from Babylon. He oversaw the beginning of the construction of the second temple at the, those early stages. He um, canonized the Bible, actually. He and his, and his court, he actually is responsible for canonizing the Bible. It was, it was and, like another version of Moses. I mean, yes, bringing the Torah alive again. In, in many ways, he is compared to Moshe because the people of Israel at that time had a, faced a, a, a tremendous tide of assimilation, and he stemmed that. He was extremely dedicated to um, his people. And so that was considered to be a great tragedy, his passing, because they were left kind of like without a, without a leader. And again, Jim, I'm connecting the dots uh, because it, it is just everything here that we're talking about is, if I may, is I think I just see it unfolding in front of me. Because first of all, uh, the whole idea of the... Um, Greek translation is about misrepresentation. It's about misunderstanding. It's about exploitation. Um, it, it's a, it's about uh, an impure force usurping um, the the truth, and that's just the stuff of reality for us today. The stuff of reality. Now, here in Israel, the Knesset dissolved itself last night at midnight. And they can't seem to come up with a budget. I think there's a lot more to it than that. And um, unbelievably, unspeakably, in my mind, we are heading now towards the fourth election in two years. It's going to be held uh, apparently on the 23rd of March, which I looked up and, by the way, comes out to the 10th of Nisan, which is the very day that Hashem commands the children of Israel to take the lamb into the home four days before the 14th of Nisan, the day of the Korban Pesach, the, pa the Passover offering. So that day of the 10th of Nisan is tremendously significant because it was a day of tremendous courage when all the Israelites stood up in front of the Egyptians and when they said, what are you doing? Because this is the God they worshiped. And they took the little lamb into the house and said, we're going to be slaughtering this because God told us to do that. So that day is the day that was chosen for the fourth election in two years can't seem to get it together over here, but that doesn't bother me in the least bit because I so strongly believe that we are on the cusp of a tremendous revelation of Hashem's sovereignty. I, I think it's uh, pretty clear to everyone that we are passing into a different era, that we have passed into a different era. There is so much going on, Jim. In this week's Torah portion, Yosef and his brothers they're reunited, but the brothers did not recognize Yosef. I'm going to be, again, speaking about that in greater detail in the video. But the point is, Jim, we're all wearing masks. We're being made to, made to wear masks here in Israel. And you know what? If that's for our common good and health, so be it. But I think it's, it's a little bit heavy that we are covering over the image in which we were created and our smile. I think it's. I think that we ha are running into a problem now of recognizing each other. I think that we are uh, also um, suffering from um, manipulation. Uh, everybody knows that we are. I mean, it's out there. It's undeniable that we are now all subject to thought police. You cannot post something. You cannot produce something. You cannot 
comment on something that is that has been deemed um, false by some authority. Um, you've got people saying that too much freedom of speech is not a good thing. You've got people right. saying that that to challenge uh, certain things are themselves uh, a threat to democracy, whereas we all thought that democracy means being able to challenge anything. So there are those of us, there are many, many people now that are feeling that they are being tossed about uh, like some wiffle ball in a universe being controlled by malignant forces. And that is not true because Hashem, just as he used the tragedy of Yosef being sold down the river to Egypt to uh, sustain a nation and to have Yosef in advance provide for everyone, so too Hashem is using all of this incredible pathos and angst in our lives to bring about a, 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 a new revelation of exactly who he is in the world. And that's the only explanation, Jim, to how we could be facing our fourth election. It's all meaningless. There isn't going to be uh, the, the state of affairs much longer, obviously, and the same thing in America and everything that we're all up against with every, every detail of, of what's going on from the pandemic to the, to the, uh, societal societal upheavals and economic upheavals and political upheavals it's all one thing it's all connected and i i see this so strongly reflected in why the sages would have decreed that the day that ezra passed away it, it should be a fast day jim because when have we last seen a a leader that we could actually call selfless a leader who lived for his people, a leader on that level. And you know what? Without the leadership, um, the sheep without a shepherd uh, are nothing but sheep. And, right. and that's exactly what's what's going on here. But again, the beauty of this month of Tevet, which by the way, the root of the word Tevet is Tov. So you know what, Jim? Open up your heart in the deepest way. Yes, good. The the. The, the light shines brightest in the darkness, in the midst of the darkness. And that light of Hanukkah, with which this month of, of Tevet began, but which now kind of descends into kind of like a spiraling descent into the mourning process of the temple, it's still the light, you know, it's still shining. And it's shining in, in this month of Tevet, which is a, a winter month. It's a month of of desperation in a way. But remember Zechariah 8.19, that these days will be turned into days of joy for the house of Judah. And so, and so, uh, you know, it, it, my goodness, I'm just, I'm shaking. I'm shaking because this is all so connected. The, the, you know, the Parsha going down into Egypt and hunkering down and getting ready for the exile and the Lack of recognition of 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 uh, the brothers understanding just who Yosef is and who and and how they have mistreated him. And then I'm thinking, Jim, about so much going on. You know, just two days ago here in Israel, a, a woman, 52 year old Esther Hogman, mother of six, was murdered, uh, and uh, obviously by by Palestinian terrorists. And you know. On the one hand, we have uh, this, so what's been called an explosion of peace, right? When, when, when Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, John Kerry 
may the name of the wicked be obliterated. John Kerry said, I really don't like that man. I never did. John Kerry said, oh my goodness, this is going to bring about mayhem and murder and, and terror and chaos because how could how dare you? You can't possibly recognize Jerusalem as capital. And instead, what happened is that we have the United Arab Emirates and we have Bahrain and we have Sudan. And as of now, we have Morocco that suddenly have normalized with Israel, much to the chagrin of the so-called Palestinians who react by continuing continuing to murder women, mothers, and and our media continues to downplay the importance of this. And your media uh, continues to downplay it. And the United Nations, the past year, condemned Israel in the year 2020 17 times, which, by the way, has the gematria of Tov. Right, 17 is the numerical equivalent of the word good. The United Nations condemned Israel 17 times and six times the rest of the world combined. So the, does the United Nations, which is supposed to be about United Nations, does it does it look favorably upon the fact that the Arab world is normalizing and recognizing Israel? That should be a cause for celebration. But it's just another, another uh, concept of... Uh, Exactly what's what what we're facing in the world today, this wave of evil. Yeah. And the thing that is so amazing to me about this Parsha is here is Joseph, who has been taught at his father's knee all the secrets that will eventually be embedded in the Torah as a young man. And here he is after all of these experiences. I mean, you can see him talking, you can see him telling Yosef as a, a young man, a, a youngster about his wrestling with the angel and, and the revelation that he got about all things come from Hashem. And it must have simply gone into Joseph's head and he didn't react to it. And here he is after all of these experiences of being thrown in the well and being sold into slavery and, and his whole this Mishigash in, in, in Potiphar's house with the wife. And then here he is taken out of prison and he's the prime minister of Egypt and he's standing in front of his brothers. And then it dawns on him the lesson his father has taught him all his life. And it's a lesson, of course, for us. And it's only been sort of veiled in the previous uh, Torah parshas. Here it is. He says, now I know everything, all of this was engineered by Hashem. We were, we, this is, it's amazing to me that it took all of that. And, and I think it shows the, 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 the real meaning of the word in Hebrew, da'at, knowledge. When you really understand, when you have knowledge, but you understand it to the point that it resonates through your being. Yosef, after all of that, he finally understood, my God, this is how you, I, I the, the whole experience that I've gone through of slavery and prison, it was all, a, a way to to uh, bring us all together and save you, save our lives, and of course we see from this Torah parsha that eventually the the uh, uh, the famine becomes so severe that the the entire nation, all of all of the Egyptians, sell all of their land to the crown, and so not only not only is the 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 uh, is Pharaoh enriched. But the nation turns into a feudal system of, of of farming, and it and people need to understand that that in this period is when Egypt became a world empire. I would love to hear um, you 
explain to us some of the parallels that you can find in your research into ancient Egypt with with the story of Yosef dividing the land and and uh, safeguarding the survival of Egypt. Well, well, very quickly, the some of the things that he instituted, you can see them. Uh, Born out even on the the hieroglyphs on the walls with the bas reliefs on how uh, he uh, he made uh, everybody said well you know if you want to eat you have to sell me your land but I'm going to give you back uh, the grains and you're going to plant and you're going to give one fifth to the crown but the priesthood of Egypt is exempt from this this is right there in this Torah parsha and you can go to the Egyptian annals today and you can see even from the old kingdom which I believe I've shown in, in my own work in my research that this all played out in the period known as the old kingdom period this is when this practice was instituted of the priesthood being exempt and of course the, the what's interesting is that the the tribe of Levi was even considered by the Egyptians to be a kind of priestly caste. Because what do we know about Levi and the slavery? Yes, actually, and a lot of people don't realize this. The tribe of, of Levi, which of course is Moshe's tribe, were exempt from the Egyptian bondage. Right. They weren't ever slaves. That's because right. even the Egyptians recognized them as kind of the rabbinical community. They they knew, well, these, these guys are the priests of, of the Israelite population. So we have that parallel. And uh, I mentioned earlier from last week the idea of the uh, uh, 13-year-old Egyptians. You can see Egyptian bas-relief, Egyptian males being circumcised. And the oral tradition tells us that Joseph also required yes, that, Egyptian males to condition. be his condition. To, when they would come with their with their with their uh, rice plate, you know, they come up to the up to the window to get served, uh, give their ticket. He would say, "This is just one thing. There's one small thing. <laughs> I didn't mention this. Is just one thing you have to do first. Yeah, you have to circumcise. Ouch! Hello." Testing one two three, <laughs> and there there's even more. The uh, this is one uh, that I love is that when Yosef communicates with his father by his brothers and telling him to please come down, he says he says uh, God because now Yosef is able to position everything. God is doing this. God is doing this. He says God has made me a father to Pharaoh, and what is so amazing about that that mode of expression a father to Pharaoh, is that in the Old Kingdom period, the word, the Egyptian word for the prime minister was Etif. And Etif literally translates to father of Pharaoh. Wow. And, and, I, and it, just, it just, it goes on and on. And the, um, uh, oh, and also, one other thing I want to get into, and then we'll, we'll revert back. Well, this is Torah. And that is, you know, we talk about the 70, it, it numbers the 70 and names the 70 who come down into Egypt in this Torah Parsha. And the question is often asked, in fact, it was even uh, put to me this past week, uh, uh, how in the world did 70 people ever, ever become anywhere from, well, the, 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 the estimate most people put on the number of Israelites who departed Egypt at the Exodus is roughly about three to six million, okay? But what people don't often realize is not all of the Israelites departed from Egypt. Many of them stayed behind. And our sages tell us that the number of people, the, the, the number of the, tr of the people of Israel who lived in Egypt at the time of the 
10 plagues was something between 10 and 12 million Israelites. And people scoff at that. And they say, there's okay, that's even worse, Jim. How could 70 people in the space of 210 years, which is the actual num- number of years from the time these 70 souls enter Egypt and they leave uh, for the Exodus, is 210 years. There is no way. Well, I would direct them to a brilliant scholar, a mathematician. His name is uh, Dr. Solomon Dinkovich. And, uh, if, you know, if you want the article, you can email me. I'll send it to you. I've got it in PDF already. Uh, this gentleman is no... Uh, Jim, ahead, give, give everybody your email address. Oh, the email address is noahide2008 at yahoo.com. That's noahide with N-O-A-H-I-D-E at uh, yahoo.com. I'll send you the PDF of the file. And, and uh, Solomon Dinkovich just, uh, has a PhD in, in applied mathematics and mechanics. And one of the things that he he did was he served at Princeton's Plasma Laboratory in Princeton, New Jersey. And I don't even understand what he did, but he served in structural and thermal analysis of vacuum vessels and and fusion devices. So figure that one out. But anyway, he he takes um, mathematical rules that are applied to the growth of to population growth. He takes that model and he does the math using 70 people, the number of years, the idea that that the more that the Israelites oppressed the their Hebrew slaves, the more they produced children. So the Israelites produced anywhere from every every even today in, in Israel, there's no such thing as a small Hebrew, you know, a small Jewish family. Uh, if you go from six in, up to as, as many as 10 people. He takes that, that figure using uh, the analysis and the model used by population experts. He does the math and he shows you with tables also how you could have easily have come up with 10 to 12 million people 210 years later. And of course, one of the things that the people often say, well, scholars say there weren't even that many people in ancient Israel. And by the way, that is just a theory. It is not a fact. Okay, people need to remember that when scholars speak, they often speak in in theorem. It's it's not a fact. We only the only thing that I'll say this and I'll be quiet. The only way that we have any uh, figures uh, from uh, these uh, population uh, polls is that uh, Josephus and another scholar by the name of uh, I believe Diodorus both will quote uh, tax polls. From the uh, from the late from a time centuries after the Exodus, that say there were about seven and a half million people uh, in in ancient Israel. But this is this is a, a tabulation centuries after the Exodus, so that doesn't even count. And by the way, I want to remind people that people say, well, there's no way that people that many people could have lived because the co- the population is confined to live along the Nile. Rabbi, people still live along the Nile today. That's where the population centers are. Do you know what the present population of Egypt is today? 103 million people. Jim, because Jerusalem Lights, you know, our goal is to share the light of the Torah with the whole world. I want to encourage our listeners that identify with what we believe in and what we share. I want to encourage them to fast on on Friday, on um, the 10th of Tevet's. Again, the purpose of a fast in 
the Torah concepts in the in the Hebrew mindset <clears throat> is not to suffer, but to bring us to a level where it's easier for us to to turn to Hashem in a, in a, with a feeling of true repentance. Because, There's a kind of clarity. Yes, because the hardest time to remember Hashem uh, is when your belly is full and a person feels, you know, that they don't need anything. You know, I'm, I, I'm, you know. But when a person runs out of fuel and just um, starts to feel a little bit more uh, on edge, that is the human condition. You know, it doesn't take much to make us realize how vulnerable we really are. And the idea of a fast day really is to be able to focus with more clarity, like you say, on our relationship with Hashem. And that is the whole concept of our responsibility, really, on a day like the 10th day of Tevet, to try and do our part to bring ourselves to a place where we really appreciate what we're missing without the temple and the the indwelling of the divine presence. So that that's really something um, to think about. You know the the fact that this is this is something that applies to so to all of us so much, especially uh, the day of um, the beginning of the destruction of the temple, the siege, because the temple is about the whole world. It's about you know, bringing the light of the Shekhinah to all of humanity, it's exactly what we what we talk about when we talk about Torah for everyone. It's its what's missing. It's all the things that I was complaining about a little bit earlier. I was talking about the thought police, and I was talking about the political crisis, and, and the fact that we're coming into a new situation, and all this frustration, and wearing the mask, and murder. It's all about the fact that we are all dysfunctional to some extent um, without this great connector, which is the presence of Hashem in the world. And you know what? What's beautiful about the Haftarah, the famous prophetic reading for our portion this week of the Joseph reuniting with his brothers, of course, the famous prophetic reading is in the book of Ezekiel. And it is uh, Ezekiel 37, which is the Prophecy of the two sticks of Joseph and Judah being united in the hands of the prophet, the two sticks of the house of Judah and the house of Joseph. The fact is, all of the descendants of Yosef, called collectively Ephraim, are out there. And Hashem said that the, the descendants of the children of Israel are going to be like the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven, and they're out there. And they need to come home. They need to reunite and this is so beautiful, this chapter 37, um, verses 15 through 20, 28 of um, uh, this chapter 37 in Ezekiel, talk about this um, union of Judah and Joseph and Ephraim and how they will no longer be two kingdoms, two nations, but they'll be united. They will dwell on the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, within which your fathers dwell. They and their children and their children's children will dwell upon it forever, and my servant David will be a leader for them forever. Jim, there's a proof to the second coming right there. My servant David will be the second coming of David himself. My, ser my servant David will be a leader for them forever. I will seal a covenant of peace with them. It will be an eternal covenant with them. Now listen to this, and I will place them and increase them, and I will place my sanctuary among them forever. Evermore, yeah. My dwelling, my, my dwelling place will be among them. I will be a God to them, and they will be a people to me. Then 
the nations will know that I am Hashem who sanctifies Israel. When? When my sanctuary will be among them forever. Yeah. So that so the so Ezekiel is saying that that is going to be the the um, the final revelation to the nations will be because of the temple they will understand that will be the greatest sanctification. And so I say, hey, this is what the tenth of Tevet fast is all about. It's about making this vision come true. So whoever has the strength to fast, we're not asking you to fast three days anymore. But uh, but. Um, you can join us on the tenth of Tave. I want to ask you a, a quick question before I forget before we wrap up, <clears throat> and I and uh, it's one of these little uh, <clears throat> excuse me the um, it's kind of a kind of a little gem from the Torah um, when uh, Pharaoh gave this land called Goshen in Torah. It's called and the Egyptians actually called it Kesson, which is essentially the same word uh, transliterated um, and. Wasn't this actually, wasn't the land they were given, wasn't it, didn't it actually belong to them anyway? Because don't we go back to the story of Avram and Sarah going down to Egypt and then plagues beset the household of Pharaoh, which of course is a microcosm of the experience of, of the of the 12 tribes at the time of the Exodus. And so they, uh, Pharaoh says, you know, leave, but I'm, you know, I want you to bless me. And so he gives them all these gifts, and I understand from the oral tradition that one of the gifts given was a large parcel of land in his in what is called Goshen. Really? Have you ever you, you never read that? Or I run across that, Jim? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I can't remember. I'll try to find where I read it, but I read it in one of the one of the commentaries years ago, and I thought it was fascinating. That is amazing. It, it, yeah. So they're actually being you know, given something that already belonged to them anyway. And it was a land that, that the, uh, the, the, it was kind of a, a weird thing because it said, we're going to give you the best of the land. Well, that's what, that's actually what Joseph called it because it was the Nile Delta, which the Egyptians really, the reason it was so open to the Israelites is most of the Egyptians didn't live there because they thought it was swamp because it's a Delta. But what have the, what have the Jews always been known for? What was, what was, Israel-like when they began to to return at the turn of the century. Oh, they had to drain the swamps. They had to drain the swamps, and that's this is why you see eucalyptus trees everywhere. This is where the expression drain the swamp comes from. Oh, <laughs> we won't go there, of course, because the police <laughs> won't allow our broadcast to stay on. Okay, I, you know what? I digress. So anyway, I'll throw it back Beautiful. to you. Beautiful, Jim. This Sunday, important Zoom class, um, we will be discussing the concept of what it really means to believe in one God. Whoever would like to participate in our Zoom class is welcome to email rabbi at rabbirichmond.com for the Zoom ID, password, and also recordings of previous Zoom classes are available. We're having a blast. So it really has a wonderful family feeling, all of, all of the people that come together for our weekly Zoom classes. James D. Long, I, I, I love you so much and so wonderful to speak to you every week and, and get your amazing insights and your amazing dedication to Hashem and the Torah. May we be hearing good news this coming week, this coming month. May our days of fasting really turn into days of rejoicing. And uh, just as the prophet Zechariah tells us, this will all turn around as it's really beginning before our very eyes to turn around. 
in the most wondrous ways. So we need to really focus on um, what's in front of us, just like Yosef and the brothers. We need to develop our ability to really be able to see who's standing in front of us and what it's really all about. May we non-Jews recognize that the Jewish people, they are our brothers, our elder brother. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.